0: Come sing, pray, write new music, share testimonies and resources, and grow together with like-minded worship leaders from across the world. Go to LLIW.net to register.
1: Hello? Is this one? My name is Paxton. I'm eight years old. I finished first grade. My favorite things to do are draw. What do you like to draw? That's the hardest question I've ever had to answer. Um, let's just say everything. So Who are you drawing right now? Um, that's Jonah. And how big was the whale? Um, maybe like as big as a three-story house. Is that three-story house there? Yep. Have you ever seen a whale? On TV, I have. Would you ever want to swim with one? Why? Because the whales swallow Jonah. So you think they'll swallow you too? You think all whales like to swallow people? (laughs) No. Are they plotting against us? No. Why do you do it? Because God made him. If you were a whale, would you swallow people? Mm, if I was hungry and I didn't have anything to eat. You would eat a person? No, only if I didn't have anything to eat. And if you were a whale. Yeah. What else do you think he saw inside the whale? Maybe a lot of krill. Wait, can you pause it? Wait, can you pause it? Can you pause it again?
0: Yeah. What do you need?
1: Um, should I, like, draw, like, Jonah and the whale or sure, something? Sure, Yeah, you can do Point? that. Why do you think that that's the message that God will take care of you? How do you think we like that? Wait, can you pause it? Yeah. Um, should I, like, write down it while I'm, like, saying the stuff, or...? You can just say it. It's fine. I'm gonna write it down. Good idea. So I drew that this is the place Jonah was in the whale and I think he was as big as a bu- the whale was as big as a building and this is what it teaches you at the be- at the and this is the building and this is what it teaches you it teaches us that God can take care of you
0: ONE OF THE MOST ENDEARING QUALITIES OF CHILDREN IS THEY ARE WHO THEY ARE. THEY SAY WHAT THEY THINK, ACT HOW THEY FEEL, DON'T HIDE BEHIND ERRORS, AND WHAT YOU SEE IS WHAT YOU GET. FOR US ADULTS, ON THE OTHER HAND, HOW WE LOOK IS IMPORTANT. WE WANT TO MAKE SURE THAT WE LOOK GOOD AND WE DON'T SHOW OUR FLAWS AND IMPERFECTIONS. SOMEHOW, ESPECIALLY WHEN IT COMES TO CHURCH, WE WANT THAT TO BE THE CASE. So look in on me, if you will. Look in on the Smith family just this morning, getting ready for church. Mom and dad are in the bathroom finishing up hair, toothbrush, toothpaste, all of that good stuff. It's a little tense in the bathroom, if you know what I mean. And finally dad says, you think we could be on time for once? And then he exits pretty quickly, actually. He doesn't stick around to hear the answer. But an answer does come as he's heading out the door it's mom saying, would you go in there and tell the kids to get off their phone and to get ready? That's what makes me late. He's already down the stairs. He goes out to the car, sits in the car in the garage waiting, waiting and looking, waiting and looking. He finally starts to scroll on his phone, but when he does, he suddenly remembers, oh, the kids. Mm. And he, he, he honks, it's kind of loud in the garage, and then jumps out to run to get the kids. But just then the door opens. Mom? Mom? angry and the two kids more angry they come out and they all get in the car and thus begins about a three-hour four-mile journey to church it is cold and it is tense and it is quiet they arrive at church park they get out and something dramatic happens morning, how are y'all doing? Great, how are you? Good, happy Sabbath. Good week? Yeah, great week. How about you? Oh, good week. How's the family? We're doing great. How about yours? Yeah, we're... Everybody's happy. And you say, what happened between that and this? Well, I suppose you could say it in a number of different ways. You could say saving face, putting your best foot forward, honor and shame keeping family matters private. You could say it in a variety of different ways. There's one other way you could say it. You could say that when we come to church, when it comes to matters of belief and discipleship, we got to at least look good, if not perfect. Hide the flaws. Bury the doubts. Don't ask the questions. Look good. Because when our flaws show, that's not much fun, is it? I was thinking about that this week and thought back to a story I told you eight, ten years ago. And I thought of this story because of something else I read. It happened in another state. I was away on a speaking engagement. After the speaking engagement, I was shaking hands with people. And this gentleman came up to me and shook my hand. Shook my hand. And he kind of looked at me kind of close. It was kind of like, mm. He looked at me closely and then he said, Wow, you look a lot better on TV. <laughs> now, I'm not quite sure how to respond to that. You know, thank you. <laughs> or, uh, Well, you look a lot better over in that corner. You know? I'm not sure how to respond to that. But I, I thought of that because of a statement I saw that another person made. He said this. I finally figured out why all my pictures turn out bad. It's my face. (laughs) It's not fun, is it? When suddenly we realize that our flaws and our feebleness and our failure is on full display. And so we try to clean it up spit, shine, polish, look good. At least we look good. Now that's enough of a challenge. What becomes even more of a challenge is that sometimes we expect the men and women in this book to be pretty close to perfect, maybe not perfect, but pretty close. We want them to look good, to be good, to be the heroes who have all the right motivations and choose all the right actions. And so there are times, and I've read them, you probably have as well, when we read books about figures in the Bible that make those figures seem otherworldly, far beyond us. There's actually a term for that. The term is hagiography. Hagiography. Hagiography comes from two Greek words. First Greek word is hagios, which means holy. Second Greek word is grapho, which means writing or write holy writing it's that kind of writing about some figure that cleans up all their flaws makes them look particularly good makes them look good on tv that's hagiography now i had an introduction to hagiography fairly early in my ministry i was i was speaking at another church doing a series i won't mention the church it was a it was a rather large state east of us And so I was was speaking here on David, David, David and Goliath. Now, I knew how I had grown up hearing the story of David and Goliath. David comes into camp, fresh-faced, full of vigor, full of courage. The giant starts to shout threats and call out for somebody to come and meet him. All the men of Israel flee, and David stands there saying, where's everybody going? I mean, come on, it's just a giant. I'll take him out. Gets his five-stone forehead, down he goes, and he stands back like, oh, well, bears, lions, giants, I'm good, (laughs) like the NFC. I'm good. I'll take out anyone. That's how I had heard it. And then I did something that's, I don't know. I don't know if you want to do this. I read the text. I actually read the story. And so I preached what I read, which is this. David arrives in camp. The giant yells. The text says, all the men of Israel fled. And then two verses later it said, David spoke to the men standing near him. Now we're, you know, I'm not the brightest and sharpest knife in the drawer, but but if everybody ran and he could still talk to men standing near him, (laughs) that says he ran too. And it is then that they tell him, Do you know what the king's going to do for the man who kills that giant? What? He's going to give him a lot of money. He's going to charge him no taxes, get the IRS completely off his back. And he's going to give him his daughter, the princess, as a bride. It is then for the first time that David says, What? You're kidding me. How long is the list? Sign me up. And they say, are you not? Have you seen that giant? He says, Have you seen that princess? <laughs> and so I preached that. Afterwards, one of the church elders caught me. I didn't like that. I said, Oh, okay. Well, I'm sorry. What, what didn't you like? He said, David wasn't like that. The Bible says he was a man after God's own heart. I said, Well, yeah, I, yeah, I know, but I mean,. And I, 1 Samuel 17, especially these verses, he took the Bible and he read them. He thought about it for a minute. And he said, I don't care what that text says. David wasn't like that. <laughs> I said, Well, <laughs> I mean, you don't care what the text says. Then what are we supposed to do? Hagiography. That's not what he was like. He didn't have those blemishes, that selfish motivation he was a man after God's own heart. Well, he was. Scripture says that, too. But he was very human, as was true with the rest of men, the men and women of Scripture, including the one we consider today. So we're in a series entitled Imperfect Believers. Pastor Miguel has been the one that's kind of organized this summer sermon series. We borrowed a title from a book by Susan Hyland where she deals with the characters in the Gospel of John. We're going to come to one of those characters today, maybe one of the best-known characters in the life and ministry of Jesus, and we don't even know her name. She doesn't have a name. We either call her the woman at the well or the Samaritan woman or the woman from Samaria. It's found in John's Gospel, the fourth chapter. We're going to read the whole story in just a moment. You're going to have to take a breath and fasten your seatbelt because we're going to read the entire story. But before we do, I want to ask you to watch for a couple of things as we read the story. First of all, I want you to watch for how the conversation develops, how it unfolds. There's a certain kind of meandering quality to it. You think, is Jesus guiding this conversation? Oh, no, 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 wait. Maybe it's the woman guiding this. Oh, no, no, wait. You're not sure who's guiding it. Is it just meandering through until suddenly you come to the end and boom, a woman who came thirsty is gulping the water of life. And you say, oh, no, Jesus had a direction he wanted to go. But just watch how the conversation unfolds. And then secondly, watch for where it ends. Ask yourself, was she a perfect believer or imperfect believer even after she met Jesus? So watch for those two things, and let's read. John's Gospel, chapter 4, we start with verse 1. Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, although in fact it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now, he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You're a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink for Jews do not associate with Samaritans? Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asked you for a drink, you would have asked of him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his flocks and his herds? Jesus answered Jesus said to her, you're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you've had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you're a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, Even now those who reap draw their wages. Even now they harvest the crop for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Thus the saying, one sows and another reaps, is true. I sent you to reap what you have not worked for. Others have done the hard work, and you have reaped the benefits of their labor. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, We no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. So Jesus, avoiding controversy heads north out of Judea to Galilee. It was straight north, but customarily people went east, crossed the Jordan, went north, and then went back west, crossed the Jordan, and ended up in Galilee. They didn't want to have to go through Samaria. It made it about twice as long of a trip, but at least you didn't have to deal with people you didn't like. But Jesus doesn't do that. He goes straight through Samaria. And it is there on the way, on the journey, that this encounter takes place. Now, you have to put this story against the backdrop of what happened in the previous chapter. The previous chapter, John chapter 3, is the chapter of the story of Nicodemus. Scholar after scholar points out the contrast between the two stories. John is trying to say something here. He's contrasting the stories to highlight what happens with the woman. So what are the contrasts? Well, there are a variety. The most obvious was he was a man, she was a woman. But you have many others as well. With Nicodemus, it was night. With the woman, it was noon. Nicodemus initiated his visit to Jesus. Jesus initiated his visit with the Samaritan woman. Nicodemus was a ruler, a leader, a teacher. He was high on the social ladder. She was at the bottom, on the bottom rung of the ladder, despised, rejected, socially outcast. There are many comparisons, but maybe the most important one is this, how it ends. Because you see, with Nicodemus, the story ends, it kind of meanders on into commentary and never makes any comment about whether or not he came to faith in Jesus. In fact, we won't hear of Nicodemus again for many chapters till the very end of the account and one other place in between. We hear little about it. The woman, on the other hand, there is something that happens. Now, we don't know much about her, We do know some things just from what the the text says in terms of clues it gives us about this woman. We know, for example, that she was no stranger to relationships. She had had five husbands and now was with a man who wasn't her husband. What we don't know is what happened to her husbands. Was she divorced? Did they die? Did she have any voice if it was a divorce? The truth is, it probably didn't matter all that much because she would have been outcast either way, even if all five of her husbands had died. Can you imagine the conversations that took place after the fourth husband and another one's in line, his family saying, you know who you're marrying? Four of them buried. Be careful. Know what's happening over at that place. So even if that were the case, there were questions. But on the other hand, if it was divorces, even more stigma, even more social shame. And remember, as a woman in that day and time, it is highly unlikely that she would have had a voice in the divorces. So we know she had been into many relationships and had not found meaning. We know that she likely had a sense of shame about all that had happened in her life. We know that. We know that she probably had a deep thirst. Because when you read the passage, when you see what happens, as soon as Jesus mentions there might be water that can truly satiate that thirst within you, she jumps on it. I want that water. Please give it to me. We know that she's thirsty. We can probably assume she was seeking God. Just read the conversation. There are quite a few people actually who say when it comes to that point in the conversation, when Jesus turns the spotlight on her and her past is revealed, that she tries to avoid that subject by suddenly getting into head talk. You know, Jesus says, well, actually, you've had five. When you don't have... You're a prophet. Hey, tell me tell me where the, the right place to worship is. They say she shifted that so she wouldn't have to face her past. I don't think that's what happens there. One scholar says, rather, what happens is this. We're talking with a woman who had yearned for fulfillment in life had yearned for a deep and profound and meaningful sense of peace in her life, a connection with God in her life, and had never found it when suddenly she realizes she's talking to a prophet. She immediately says to him, Sir, tell me the question of my life. Where can I find God? Our people say right here, I've found him here. Your people say, over there, is he there? Where can I find God? And Jesus says to her, you just did. She comes thirsty, yearning to be deeply satisfied. And then she has this encounter at the well. It's fairly ambiguous at first what's happening there. Let me read you a quote from one Bible commentary that kind of underlines the ambiguity that exists at the beginning. Craig Keener, New Testament scholar, writes this In view of the ambiguity of the situation, that is, the woman comes at noon, thus avoiding contact with other women, her statement, I have no husband, could mean I'm available. While wells were common places of conversation, they also could serve as places for finding spouses, most notably in some well-known biblical accounts like Isaac and Moses. Although she obviously came to the well alone, this Jewish man converses with her against custom and might be thought to be asking a leading question. Jesus remo- removes the ambiguity which stems from his refusal to observe customs that reflected ethnic and gender prejudice not from flirtation. It's the watering hole. It's where people get, it's where people still gather. It's where people met, where people meet. She comes because well we're not sure the text doesn't say, but we can assume she comes because the other women of the town don't like her, despise her. She doesn't fit in with them. There was water in Sychar. She could have gotten water there. Why walk a mile out of the town? Some would say, well, it's because it's Jacob's well, special water there. That's valid. But why come at noon when all the others would come early morning, late afternoon? She's avoiding something. She comes to this watering hole by herself and meets a man weaves the conversation around to asking you got a husband? Whoa antenna is up she knows how these things can go but this man is different he's looking for a love connection of a different kind he says to her I have water, the liquid of life that will truly satisfy your thirst. Please give me that water. By the time they finish their conversation there at the well, she is gulping down the liquid of life, filled with a spiritual exhilaration, an excitement that her life is being transformed, that somehow this is meeting her deepest and most profound needs. She leaves behind her water pot. She races to the village, and in a statement of overstatement, she says, come and see a man who told me everything I've ever done. She seems like the perfect believer, gets to know Jesus, and immediately becomes a missionary. I have a firm foundation, a firm faith in him. Now he's changed my life. Now I'm going to invite all of you to come. Like the man I read about, elevator operator years ago, in the city of Nashville, liked to share Jesus with others. Somebody pressed him about that. He said, look. I'm just a nobody telling everybody that there's somebody that can save anybody. That's all I'm doing. Well, that's all she's doing. I'm a nobody. But I'm going to tell everybody that there's somebody that can save anybody. She goes to the town, and they respond. And they come, and much of the town is transformed. And we like to close the story right there and say, Perfect believer, why can't I be like that? And then we're a little more stooped. We walk a little more slowly to the car and think, Pastor's hammered on me today because I don't share. Because I still have issues. I still have questions. Well, let me read you another quote. Second biblical scholar. Listen to what this scholar writes. He's referring, first of all, to verse 29. Could this be the Messiah? Is the question. But in the Greek, that is preceded by a word. The word is meti, which means surely not. So listen to the scholar. Her question, he writes, could this be the Christ introduced by the word meti, surely not, implies a negative answer or at least an element of doubt. The evangelist seems to have been suggesting that the woman, despite leaving her water pot, was still debating the issue herself. In periods of questioning, people seek confirmation. The woman's question, thus, seems to be one of those stages in the process toward decision-making. Writers and preachers who think the woman had reached the stage of commitment to Jesus at this point or that she was here making a firm confession of faith have failed to account for the Greek text. Hmm. Her testimony concerning Jesus' incredible knowledge about her life seems to be balanced by her unresolved doubt. But together they provide a stimulus for the others to go out and investigate this potential Messiah. The evangelist made his case through an ironical twist. People do not need to be fully convinced in order to be witnesses. So she races back to the town. Something dramatic has happened to her. This man is different than any other. There's an authenticity, a purity, a kindness, a selflessness about him. She raises back, says, come. He told me everything I ever did. Mm, Surely this isn't. Could it be? Wow. Come and see him. Come and meet. What do you think? Surely this isn't the Messiah, is it? Could it be? Is this the one? It's remarkable. You have a believer with questions. A witness with uncertainties. A disciple with issues. A follower who not only doesn't have all the answers, may have more questions than answers, but recognizes that in Jesus there is something different. He slaked my thirst. I think he's changing my life. This could be, oh, surely not. I mean, come on, a a man hot and tired and sweaty and dusty and thirsty asking if I'm married, is that the Messiah? Surely not. But look what he did. Makes me wonder. Makes me wonder about you, makes me wonder about me. All those excuses. I don't know enough about the Bible. I don't know all the answers. My life is no great example. I have issues. I don't have everything figured out, and I certainly don't have it all put together. In other words, I'm imperfect. (laughs) And the woman says, come with me then. Me too. But I tell you, something's happening in me. And maybe he's doing something with me, imperfect believer that I am. Once upon a time, in a land far away, there was a servant. He served a very wealthy master. One of the most important tasks the servant had every day was to take that long pole that he himself had fashioned from a branch, to hook on to either end that big water pot, to duck under it, and to head off down the dry, barren pathway to the stream. There was a well near there. There was the birthplace of the spring. There was a water creek that ran nearby. He would go and he would fill those water pots with water, and then a much heavier load coming back, he would make his journey back every day, twice a day, morning and evening. One water pot was perfect. The neck was narrow. The opening was small. Very little water spilled. The other water pot, designed in the same way, was flawed, had a crack. And the water leaked out. So that by the time the servant reached the master's house, it was half empty. And it happened one day, he was at the creek, at the well, filling the water pots when he fell into conversation with the cracked pot. And the cracked pot said to him, I'm so ashamed, so embarrassed. Why? Because, look at me, imperfect, cracked pot. By the time we get home, half of what you put in me has leaked out and been wasted. I'm ashamed. And the servant said, I want you to do me a favor. I want you to watch as we go home today. Watch what happens on the journey between here and and the master's house. So he picked up the pole and he began his journey toward home. They got to the master's house and the crackpot, per custom, half empty. And the servant said, "Did, did you watch? I did. What did you see? Well, I saw a dry, barren, arid landscape and a dry, dusty pathway. Yes, that's true. Is that all you saw? Well, no, it's not. What else did you see? I saw that on my side of the pathway there are many flowers in full bloom. Ah, said the servant. I saw your crack, and I saw the water. So I begin to scatter seed. And now because of you, every evening, the master has a beautiful bouquet on his table. I don't know about perfect believers. Don't look up here. You won't find one. And I'm going to say I'm not going to look out there either. (laughs) But I can tell you this. There is something about Jesus, something about the heart of Jesus that wants every cracked pot available. Just wants us to turn it all over to him. Shattered dreams, broken hearts, broken toys, whatever they are, he wants them. And it's amazing what he does with them. I don't know what he'll do with you, but I can tell you this. There is a very special place in the heart of Jesus for imperfect believers.